Go ahead and find Habakkuk in the table of contents in your Bible. Bookmark it. We are going to be embarking right now on a five-week journey through this little-known book. We're going to go through every verse. It's a small book, three short chapters, but it's very important. It's very timely. It's very applicable. Habakkuk is an obscure gem in the Bible. In case you're wondering how a 2,700-year-old book applies to your 2017 life, you'll be surprised at how practical Habakkuk is. He was asking the tough questions in his day that we are asking today. Questions such as, why does God allow evil and heresy, injustice, sickness, and atrocities? How can a good, loving, caring, all-powerful, sovereign God who rules over all things not intervene in the sight of horrendous evils and shocking injustice? Why doesn't God answer all my prayers? Why am I waiting so long? These are the kind of things we are asking, and this is what Habakkuk was asking. The core of Habakkuk's message lies in the call in chapter 2, verse 4, to trust God. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. The point of this book is to teach us and to remind us to trust God who is merciful. The series title comes from chapter 3, one of Habakkuk's prayers, where he's asking God to remember his mercy in the midst of his wrath. In wrath, remember mercy, O God. God remembers his mercy toward lost sinners in the exercise of his just wrath against sin. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God was remembering his mercy. We just read through Habakkuk's three short chapters, and today we're going to go through chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And there we will see three truths about God's ways, about God's sovereignty over evil, as we trust the Spirit of God to teach us, to challenge us, to change us, and to comfort us. And I hope that we will all, as a result of looking at these verses today, that we would all praise God for His sovereign ways. Pray with me, please. Lord, we come to You now and we acknowledge that You know all things. And Lord, we pray that you would comfort our hurting hearts, that you would change us by your spirit through your word, and Lord, that you would challenge us to respond in ways that only you can bring about for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk is a little book. Three short chapters. Habakkuk is also a little-known book. It's one of the 12 minor prophets, and when you hear minor, you might be tempted to think, oh, it's not as important as the major ones. That would be wrong. They're not minor in importance. They're minor in size. They're short books. There are 17 Old Testament prophets, the books, 
Five are major, 12 are minor, all very important. Every time you come to the Word of God, you must remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired of God. It is God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Habakkuk is a little book. It's a little known book. And Habakkuk is a little known man. Nothing is known about him except his name. I think that's how it should be with God's messengers. If you remember the messenger more than you remember the message, your priorities are wrong. So I'm glad that we don't know that much about Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a form of the Hebrew word for embrace. It pictures a wrestler tangled up with his opponent, and this is appropriate because Habakkuk wrestles with God in prayer. Habakkuk is unique amongst the prophetic books. It contains three prayers and two answers from God. The third prayer happens to be a song, to be sung by the people of God. Habakkuk is basically, if you boil it down, a prayer journal of a burdened man. A prayer journal of a burdened man. It's a little book, a little known book, a little known man. It contains a big message from God. In his just wrath against sin, God remembers his mercy. And extends that mercy to those who come to faith in Christ by grace alone. Believing in the shed blood of Christ in their place on the cross. And you've got chapter 2 verse 4. The just shall live by faith. The message of Habakkuk is this. Trust God. Live by faith because God is merciful. The series title, again, in wrath, remember mercy. God remembers his, his mercy towards sinners. If you look at the outline of the book, it's very simple, and it really follows God's redemptive plan. First, you see sin in chapters 1 and 2, and you see judgment. God's people are doing evil unrestrained, and God's answer is to send them a nation more evil than they to discipline them. That's what you see in chapters 1 and 2, sin and judgment. But chapter 3, you see salvation and faith, mercy. And you see Habakkuk saying, before the discipline comes, no matter what happens, I am going to trust God. No matter what comes upon us, I am going to rejoice in God, my Savior. Habakkuk was probably living in the last 20 years of the 7th century B.C., before Christ. Following the most wicked reign of any king in Judah, Manasseh. Jeremiah was one of his contemporaries. And in that time, in that time in history, sin of every kind was epidemic. Unbelief amongst the people of God was rampant. He's writing sometime after the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonians in 612 BC, which was prophesied by Nahum before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 B.C., sometime around that time. And Habakkuk is wrestling with big questions. How can God not intervene in sight of the horrendous evil and shocking injustice I see? 
Why does God allow evil and sickness and atrocities? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? Why am I waiting so long? And the big question, is God in charge of history? And if so, why do things happen as they do? And in the context of Habakkuk praying these questions, we see some truths about God's sovereignty over evil. We see some truths about God's ways. Let me draw your attention first to verses 1 through 4, where we see that God's ways are misunderstood. They are often misunderstood. God's ways are often misunderstood by God's people. You might be misunderstanding God's ways. Verse 1, the burden, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That's a weighty, heavy oracle burden of judgment from God upon sin. It was used by the prophets to announce God's wrath against sin. He is declaring God's judgments to come. There is a heaviness of responsibility on Habakkuk's shoulders to declare to man what God had shown him. Jeremiah, the prophet, once decided that he was not going to declare the message that God had given him. And his response was this. The word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it back and I cannot hold it back. Habakkuk was delivering heavy, weighty things to the people of God. He saw this vision. He saw this vision because he was the prophet of God. It's not because he deserved to see the vision. He was blessed to see the vision. He was selected to serve God. He was chosen. He was drafted by God. He could not dodge this responsibility. Verse 2, he complains against unanswered prayer for relief. Look at it. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? He thinks God is indifferent to Judah's sins. He is jealous for God's righteousness. He knows that a breach of God's covenant demands judgment. And so he, he's questioning God's wisdom. He's confused. He's confused at God's seeming inactivity in the face of this blatant violation of God's law. The Jews had sinned and should be punished. And he has deep anguish of soul. He's reflecting this anguish, the same kind that the psalmist expressed many times, similar thoughts. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist cries out to God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? Have you been there? Pouring your soul out to God? The prophet wants cleansing. The prophet wants revival amongst the people of God. Like Habakkuk, Job puzzled over God's failure to answer as well. Job chapter 19 verse 7 I cry out violence and you do not answer. 
Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, last part of that verse. I cry out violence and you do not hear. Verse 3 begins, why? How long? I keep praying. He'd been praying out of deep concern for the people of God, the righteous remnant of which he was a part. And he's come to the utter point of utter confusion over God's silence. He can't understand how God could keep the situation going on and on without stopping it. These are the kind of things we pray. These are the kind of things that cause deep anguish in our souls. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So Judah is being defined by malicious wickedness. Moral and ethical oppression. And the result is contention and strife. Verse 4. The law is paralyzed. Literally powerless. Literally frozen, chilled, numbed. Justice never goes forth. Not respected as authoritative. God's word has been frozen by the corrupt leaders of Judah. Habakkuk says the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted, twisted. See, the best law in the world can't help you if you don't obey it. The wicked outnumber the righteous. They surround them. They enforce their will. Justice is therefore twisted. It is perverted. Possessing the law here does Israel no good. No justice among God's people. Perversion of God's law prevails throughout the whole land. This is their situation. Worst thing you can do in this situation is ask for justice when your leaders are unjust. It's like asking a crooked sheriff in an old west town for justice. And what happens is when evil goes unchecked, people wrongly assume, well, God doesn't care about what's going on. They might even think, well, maybe he's all right with it. Maybe he just condones it. And they misunderstand God's ways. God's ways are are routinely misunderstood by professing believers. Truth is, God is long-suffering. God is forbearing. God is patient. God is using everything, Romans 8, 28, to accomplish his purposes. You know, a woven rug, most woven rugs from the underside look, underside look like a mess. Now, the top part looks really good, but you look underneath, and you're like, oof, that, that doesn't look good. Well, see, we see the underbelly of life. And God sees the wonderful tapestry he's weaving. And we fail to recognize it at times. And so we misunderstand what God is really like. Corey Ten Boom, the author of The Hiding Place, she's buried right down the street at Fairhaven Cemetery. Those who had the opportunity to tour her home in the Netherlands got to see her embroidery that was still in the hoops. And the guides would tell how Corey would tell her friends to look at the backside of the embroidery. A dark and foreboding tangle of various threads with no sign of order or meaning. But then there was this beautiful and colorful design on the other side. And here's what Corey would say. In heaven, we will see the sunny side. The purpose drawn out of chaos. And forever in Christ we shall stay on the sunny side. God's ways are misunderstood. 
Look over to verses 5 through 11. I, I want to point out another thing about God's ways. Not only are they misunderstood, they are also mysterious. They're hard to figure out. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In response to Habakkuk's perplexed pleading, God breaks the silence. He says, you know what? I share your concern. I'm going to respond. He gives these plural commands. Look, see, wonder, be astounded. This is not just for Habakkuk. This is for the people of Judah and Jerusalem to note this coming invasion. Verse 6, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Impetuous. The whole nation irrationally ill-tempered. Like a bear robbed of its cubs and striking out irrationally in every direction. Bitter, cruel. They want to disrupt the lives of others. They're marching through the breadth of the earth. They are proud. They are confident in themselves. There is no inch of the earth that will escape its brutality. The army that Habakkuk sees in this vision possesses strength and the audacity, really the boldness, to take on the world. They're going to seize dwellings not their own. God's going to bring a ruthless people to invade his people. And the ruthless nation is self-assured, they're self-sufficient, and they're self-deified. They, they think they're their own God. They're deadly. Verse 7, they are dreaded. They're terrible. That describes the terror brought on by the bared teeth of a crocodile or the snorting of a war horse. This marauding band will come with vengeance. There will be no shred of tenderness, no shred of mercy. They're fearsome, troublesome. They're awesome in their sheer terror. And from, them, from their own selves, justice and dignity go forth, meaning they make up their own morality. They are independent. They're autonomous. They're a self-proclaimed, self-sufficient nation. They don't look to God for help. They don't acknowledge God. They determine their own standard of truth. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit familiar? They honor themselves. They're concerned with their own name. They build memorials to themselves. As the psalmist put it, man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beast that perish. And they will perish, but not before God uses them as an instrument of his judgment on his people. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. They're agile, they're quick, they're attacking, they're speedy. No use running, they're going to get you. They're going to catch you. They have a raw hunger for power that drives them on. Fiercer than evening wolves. Evening wolves, they're hungry all day long and they prowl at night for food. And they have a ravenous appetite that drives them. And they make their senses keener. And they find every fugitive, every victim... So like wolves, Babylon's army is eager to attack the people of God. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They're galloping furiously. Horses and chariots with the tanks and submarines and fighter planes of that day. And they're going to attack from every angle. and They're going to overwhelm anything in its way. Habakkuk says they fly like an eagle swift to devour. 
like vultures hovering over roadkill. God had promised a curse for the covenant being broken. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. He said he would bring a nation from the ends of the earth that would fly like an eagle swooping down. Verse 9, they all come for violence because God's justice is terrible in its consequence. All their faces are forward. They are intent on overtaking God's people. They gather captives like sand. This is going to be a bloodbath. This is going to be a total eclipse. In verse 10, they, they scoff at kings. They, they, they laugh at rulers. They laugh at every fortress. They, they pile up earth and take it. Verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and they go on guilty. Their own strength is their God. God is going to establish some semblance of justice on earth via a nation that deifies its own brute force, that worships itself. And the wicked in Israel will not escape. They're going to be devastated by this mighty tool raised up by God. And God's people are going to be cast off by Gentiles more wicked than they. Mysterious. Hard to understand. Hard to figure out. God's ways are not just misunderstood. They are mysterious. He's not always going to tell us exactly what he's doing and when and why. I want you to go back to verse 5. I want to point out a third thing we see about God's ways. They're not only misunderstood. They're not only mysterious. They are also magnificent. They are wonderful. They are awesome. He does all things well. God's ways are, are beautiful, even in the midst of judgment. Verse 5, look at the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. Now, God is not an alarmist. He is giving words of alert. Look, see, wonder, be astonished, because his people are going to stand amazed at the awesome coming judgment and know that God brought it to them because of their sin. They will marvel intensely at the magnificence of God. Now God's people knew how to celebrate his deliverance. They knew how to worship him for delivering them. And, and you see it in the Psalms, you see it in elsewhere in the Old Testament where the people are just praising God with songs of deliverance because he's delivered them from their enemies. Psalm 48 is an example. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, the kings saw and the kings wondered and the kings fled in terror. And so they sing these songs over and over again. But here in Habakkuk, God reverses this completely. God inverts the whole picture. Israel is going to look at the nations and see and wonder because the terrible judgment is coming upon the, God's people. They'd been warned and they didn't repent. And this work of God is going to be accomplished in the days of its hearers. In the days, in your days, this shall occur. And the response is going to be somewhat like the psalmist in Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He's going to use this wicked nation to crush 
their pride. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I'm going to raise up worse perpetrators of injustice than you, and they're going to execute judgment on you. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Every nation on earth is under the hand of God. There is no power in this world that is not ultimately controlled by him. Things are not what they appear to be. It it would seem to be the astute military prowess of the Chaldeans that had brought them up into the ascendancy, but it was not so at all. God had raised them up. God is the Lord of history. He is seated in the heavens, and the nations to him are as grasshoppers, as a drop in a bucket, as the small dust of the balance. The Bible asserts that God is over all. He started the historical process. He is controlling it, and he is going to end it. We must never lose sight of this crucial fact. He's right. Justice has disappeared from the land of Israel. You see this in the first four verses. Wickedness and violence existed unchecked, and in these dark days, Habakkuk asks God to intervene, and God says, yes, I will. I will send the Chaldeans to judge you. And in this opening passage where Habakkuk just dives into the deep end right away, we see three truths about God's sovereignty over evil. We see three things about God's ways. His ways are misunderstood often. His ways are mysterious, hard to figure out. Because they're his ways, not ours. And they are magnificent. They are, they are beautiful. And in light of that, how then shall we live? How ought we to live in light of that? Trust God who is merciful. Praise him for his sovereign ways. No matter what. God wants you to know him intimately. To have a deep abiding relationship with him. And and, and to do that, you need to cling to him for understanding. That you need to trust in the Lord in all your ways and, and not lean on your own understanding. Because when you don't understand God's ways, you are either going to believe what the word of God says about God or what the world says about God. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation. And you need to to truly wrestle with God's mysterious ways. Don't misunderstand him. Go to the word and keep coming back to the word. And the word reveals exactly what God is like. But you need to pray honestly to God. Don't just pray what you think God wants you to say. Pray what is on your heart. The psalmist said, Pour out your heart like water before the Lord. Habakkuk did this. He cries out to God in prayer. We're reading this man's prayer journal. That happens to be for us as well. Prayer is the God-given framework by which you can cast every burden on him. 
1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And so even when it looks as if he doesn't hear your prayer, keep going to him in prayer, being absolutely honest. Habakkuk was right to take the nation's evils to God. Too many people trust in princes and seek help from man. Too many of us think that politicians and protests are going to bring about reformation. It won't. They won't. Only God can bring it about. Do you take your heartache over sin to God? Should we not cry out to God against the evils of our times? Should we not cry out to God against the evils in our hearts? And this is by no means to be pointing the finger outside the church, but let's just state the kind of world in which we live. We live in a world of violence. We live in a world of injustice. Violent abortions, violent euthanasia, violence against women and children, violence against fellow classmates, violence against fellow human beings. You can express your confusions to God. That's very appropriate when done in the context of faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be as honest with God as you can be. He knows your heart. He knows your burden. He knows the anguish of your soul. Don't cave to the temptation to stop praying. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and nothing has come of it, so I guess I will stop praying. No. Do not cave to the unbelieving notion that you should stop praying. Proverbs, verse, Proverbs 15, verse 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've come to faith in Christ by grace alone. Do you know that God has showered you with his mercy? God hears your prayers. If you're not a believer, God's not listening to you. The Lord is far from the wicked. The wages of sin is death. Jesus said, the one who doesn't believe in me is condemned already. You condemned yourself. If you're an unbeliever today, there's just one thing for you to do right this moment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ crucified, where he died on the cross in your place, shedding his blood taking every ounce of wrath that your sins deserved so that he could extend mercy. That, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he is risen, he is exalted at the right hand of the, the throne of God, and he is returning with vengeance on unbelievers and extreme magnificent blessing on all those who believe, who would say in a moment, there is no way I could ever deserve what I have. I was talking to a man just yesterday, and he said, you know, if, if only I could be good enough, that maybe when I die, God would say, well, I'm going to let you in because you were good enough. And I told him, brother, cousin, it was my cousin. I said, you could never be good enough. You could never be good enough. You got to trust in the mercy of God. You got to trust in the grace of God. No one's good enough.
when you're baffled by God's mysterious ways, ask him what he might be teaching you. Ask him how he might be wanting to humble you and smash your pride. Ask how he might be displaying the glorious gospel. Psalm 62, verse 8, trust him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge. Psalm 46, God is a refuge in strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God knows your heart. Declare your dependence on him. Realize there are some, there are some mysteries that only he knows in his choice whether he reveals the answers or not. In his time, he is magnificent. He is sovereign. He is working all things together for his glory and your good. So cling to him for understanding. Wrestle in prayer regarding his mysterious ways. And praise him for his magnificent gospel. Habakkuk wasn't the first one to cry out how long. He wouldn't be the last. But God was the first to cry out how long. How long would my people ignore my goodness in giving a double portion of manna? How long would my people continue on in unbelief? And on and on it went. How long? Then you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 6, and you see the saints of God, believers, martyred believers, crying out, how long, O Lord? The fifth seal is opened, and under the altar, the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Wait. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, God's magnificence is seen in his sovereign ordering and providential orchestration of all things. God's magnificence is seen in his beautiful transformation of lives by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. And God's magnificence is seen as his judgment paves the way for, for mercy. Jesus was judged at the cross with our judgment that we deserve so that we could be shown mercy. And sometimes in the wisdom of God, sinners are permitted to express very high degrees of sin before God intervenes. Think Apostle Paul. God displays the glorious gospel. Sinners grow worse and worse to demonstrate that God's mercy and grace are stronger than man's sins. His kindness leads us to repentance. He is sympathetic with your agonies. He is sympathetic with your grief. Just the other day, it was St. Patrick's Day, commemorating his death on March 17, 461. Jim Dennison wrote a blog about it, and here's what he said. As a boy in Britain, Patrick was kidnapped by Irish pirates and enslaved for six years. He escaped back to Britain, but returned to Ireland years later as an evangelist. His love for the Irish people motivated his sacrificial and courageous ministry. 
He led thousands to Christ and planted churches across the land. No matter what, if you're a believer, you need to go to those who need Jesus, whether they will receive you or not, whether they will listen to you or not, and tell them the truth in love. And wherever you go, Jesus goes first. St. Patrick prayed this prayer, victorious faith. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. When you cry out due to the sin that you see all around, remember that God is long-suffering and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. When you hide in your sin, do not think that because God doesn't go all Ananias and Sapphira on you, that somehow he doesn't notice. Or maybe, he isn't all, maybe he's just all right with it. Remember that he is long-suffering and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And when you wonder if the tangled mess of your life might ever amount to anything good, and your hope seems like dust, and your joy is long faded, remember, God is long-suffering and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Trust God who is merciful. Praise God for his sovereign ways. Do not look away from the glorious magnificence of the gospel. D.L. Moody said, trust in yourself. You are doomed for disappointment. Trust in your friends. They will die and leave you. Trust in money. You may have it taken from you. Trust in reputation. Some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God. You are never to be confounded in time or eternity. Lord, thank you for your magnificent grace. Lord, thank you that we can trust you because you are merciful and you are long-suffering and you are slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And you see and you know and you will do right. Fix us on your glorious magnificence in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.